Straight from the Mayor's Mouth, with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Good morning there Matt, how are you? Well I've actually got to make a correction. I always like to be very accurate with the information that we put yes, on the podcast, yes. and in fact, accurate with all the information I give to the community because the community is relying on council to make sure that we give accurate information. But I made a mistake last week, and I want to apologise to our listeners. You and made a mistake. It. I did. Don't send me out my little uh, diary here and write this down. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we talked last week about the Honourable Andrew Giles, MP. Minister for Immigration, Citizenship and Multicultural Affairs. Yes. And Andrew Giles, I said, made a change to the Citizenship Ceremonies Code that would allow you to have a ceremony six days before Australia Day, before yes, the 26th I January, this conversation, yes. or six days after. So you had that window of the six days before and after. Mm-hmm. Well, that's incorrect, and I apologise. Oh, okay. It's actually three days. So Three days it, before it, or... And after. And after. Okay. So you can now have the change that was made to the Australian Citizenship Ceremonies Code was that you can have a ceremony and the citizenship process up to three days before the 26th of January or three days after okay. or, of course, on the day itself. So you've got a seven-day yep. window yep. to be able to have that. So I made a mistake. I was thinking of six days, obviously, but it wasn't six days in total, it was. Yes. I was saying six days before and after. Oh, you're no, human after days. all, my friend. That's okay. That's all right. These there things work like that. Yes. The the point was, I suppose, the point, the main point that was made was that there is flexibility now to have that citizenship and yes. ceremony before and after. But I got the number of days wrong. So that's all right. Well, it's still a significant amount of time, isn't it? Really, it is. It still gives you flexibility. Yeah, 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 that's the important thing. So I apologise, but we've put the record straight now. Oh well, very very good. Now, mate, uh, let's jump straight into it. I noticed during the week that, uh, and I think one of the great things as uh, as being the mayor, you get these opportunities to do this. You tend a number of uh, presentations and ceremonies uh, to to help acknowledge uh, the people in our community who are doing some incredible things. And here's a classic example of one I'd suggest, uh, the Irana Midwestern Police District Awards Presentation Ceremony. Now, you attended this during the week. The police officers in our community do an incredible job, don't they, on a day-to-day basis. So was this uh, award ceremony, was it to recognise the policemen in our community who were doing incredible things? A couple of things. There was certainly a part of that where there were some bravery awards given out, some mm. awards for people that have, or police officers that have done some outstanding work. Yes. And I would say that just about every police officer does outstanding work every day because mm. they're going out there and they're putting their lives on the line in many cases for you and I. Absolutely. So that's incredible to start with. So that was part of it. Certainly another part of it was some operations, some major operations that some of our police have been involved with. Mm. And we might talk about major drug operations mm. or sting operations, that type of thing, and also some long service awards. Mm. And there was both the Assistant Commissioner Brett Greentree who was there and the Superintendent Tim Chin, who's the commander of the Irana Midwestern Police District. But when Brett spoke, he said something where I thought it was actually quite significant. He said, don't feel like here's the, I've turned up to work for... 10 years or 20 Mm. years award, you've turned up to work and you've been there at the front line every one of those 10 years or 20 years, every day for those days you've come to work. So it's not, uh, oh, well, I just turned up to work award. It's I've still been there at the front line award. So be proud of it because I think sometimes 
the police maybe give each other a bit of a hard time. Mm. Oh, you just got the twenty year award, mm. big deal. You just turned up mm. to work for twenty years, but no, it's it's a massive thing. Like you think it about is. today, like at any given day for a police officer, they're putting their lives on the line potentially. And you, you don't, know. don't know, you don't know. This is the thing. Mm. You could be pulling someone over because they've run a red light, yeah. unbeknownst to the police officer pulling them over. They may be involved in a lot more serious crime, and next thing you know, they're staring down the end of a barrel yep. or they're under assault. There's always that opportunity for yeah. a police officer to be in danger any time. Now, one of the bravery awards I, I want to point out mm. was significant in that police were first to a fire, and they were there before the fire brigade, right. the fire and rescue team had yep. turned up, and there's a burning building. Someone said there's people inside. So two of the officers went in. Now, they don't have all the same equipment as the fire and no, rescue team no. do. They went in. They found someone unconscious, yep. dragged that person out. Wow. By the time they've done that, the fire rescue team did turn up yep. and people said there was still someone else in there. The fire rescue team went in and they found someone else. Yep. Now, the fire and rescue team said that it was probably unlikely that when they got there and the time that available to them, they would have been able to get two people out. Is that right? So more than likely, they probably would have got one person out. Yep. So maybe there was someone that would have been left in that fire, mm. overcome by fumes, maybe burnt to death. So those two officers who went in risked their lives because yeah. you're going to a burning building. Yeah. Things happen in a burning building, not just smoke inhalation, but yeah. obviously things, parts of the structure can collapse. So they've gone out and pulled them out. They've obviously risked their lives to do that. Yes. A smoke inhalation for them is an issue as well. Yep. So just when you hear things like that, mm. you hear stories like that, mm. and the, the two officers that came out to collect that particular award just look like, normal Joe Blow citizens, yeah, they're out yeah. there just doing their job. But a burning building, there were people standing around because they were saying there's people inside there. Yeah. They weren't going in. Is that right? But they relied on wow. the police officers to go in. So stories like that, and I won't go through all the stories that I heard on the day, mm. but there is no doubt about it that there are people out there who are performing incredible acts of bravery, but there's also people out there just making us feel safe. If yeah. you've got a problem, if you've got an incident, if you've got someone where you need help, the first thing you do is you pick up the phone in triple O and say, police. That's right. Because you rely on them to help. Now, people don't like it when they might get pulled over on the side of the road because they're going too fast on the highway. Yeah. But even that keeps people safe. I think that's the big thing, isn't it, Matt? It's the fact that we live in a society today where uh, I think all of us, the first priority is to feel safe. Uh, as long as we're feeling safe, we're okay with life. And the police... You know, the firefighters, the ambos, they're out there every single day putting their lives at risk uh, simply to keep us safe. So congratulations to all those involved, I suggest, and who won those awards. A number of years ago, Matt, uh, Charles Sturt University established um, themselves here in Dubbo, and they've... Uh, well, it's, it's been an interesting journey, I'd suggest, for Charles Sturt University. Um, they they sort of start off with a pretty big bang, and we, we got the teaching and there was nursing and other sort of things into it. I'm not really quite sure where Charles Sturt University sits right now in regards to uh, the educational uh, side of things here in Dubbo. I know they've certainly moved a lot to the online learning scenario. I noticed here, though, that uh, also during the week you had the opportunity here to catch up with them to talk about maybe a master plan. There's a master plan option which Charles Sturt University is maybe looking at doing. Um, talk us through it. What's, what's happening here? I would actually suggest that one of the great successes of Charles Sturt University is now potentially part of their, not downfall, that's too mm. drastic, but part of the problem they have at the moment. One of the things that Charles Sturt has done very well over the years has been in facilitating remote learning. Mm. You've had campuses, 
like Dubbo, like Bathurst, like Wagga, and people have been able to go to those campuses, but they've also been able to learn remotely. And I remember when I've gone into places like Kids Zoo, when Kids Zoo used to be open, or cafes, mm. and you'll see someone sitting there working away, you say good day to them, and they're sitting there doing their work at Charles Street University. Yeah, right. It might be online lectures, it yep. might be just doing remote work. So it's very flexible. Mm. And I remember the first O week that I got to go out to at CSU where they said, could you come along and just say hello on behalf of the people of Dubbo? Mm. And I'm imagining in my mind a bunch of 18-year-olds mm-hmm. and I was thinking back to when I first went to university and I was thinking about the talk that I was going to give these students, thinking that I was talking to an 18-year-old mm. version of myself. Yep. And I'm sitting there at the front of maybe 150 people or so in front of me and I'm thinking, gee, there's a lot of the parents that have come along. <laughs> and I said to one of the CSU staff sitting next to me, I said, gee, this is great to see so many parents, but I thought there'd be more students. And they yep. said, there's no parents here. These are all students. These and are the students. suddenly That's dawned it. on me yeah, that yeah. CSU had really set itself up for such flexible learning that some people that had been going through life and wanted to go back and Mm. re-educate or even get their degree for the first time, they were maybe in their 30s or 40s and Mm. they were at different stages of life. So Mm. all the things I was going to say about 18-year-olds and (laughs) and the journey ahead of you, I I better throw Uh, those ideas out. Welcome to the modern world. This is it. That's right. (laughs) I've got to talk a bit differently to this group. So I think they've been really good at that. Mm. When our pandemic hit and Mm. and suddenly people couldn't go into university, the Sandstone universities, the Sydney universities, the New South Wales universities, Mm. suddenly had to struggle and work out how they could do remote learning because their model had always been, we want people in our buildings on campus. The old line of bums on seats, so to speak, wasn't it? Exactly. Charles Street University, though, were in a great position because they had already been doing remote learning. Mm. So they really adapted to COVID-19 very well. But now we're past that. Mm. The more traditional universities are getting people back into lectures. In fact, my son actually sat down for his very first in-person, in-lecture hall exam just last week. Is that right? And all the other ones he'd done had been done remotely or they'd been doing assessments in a different way. So it was all a bit foreign to me. So it's like doing the HSC again. (laughs) Sit down in a a lecture hall. Sitting in silence and this sort of stuff looking around. Everyone's quite studious. Had to have his pockets checked when he wanted to go to the toilet, that sort of thing. Was HSC all over again, wasn't it for him? Exactly right. So I think they're going back to that model. But Mm. because Charles Sturt had been so good at the remote model, Mm. people are staying with that remote model. So when I've been out to Charles Sturt University here in Dubbo recently, uh, there's a great campus there. There's great buildings. In fact, I remember our Rotary Club many years ago, maybe maybe a decade and a half ago, mm. contributed a lot of money to build some accommodation out there. But a lot of these areas now look like ghost buildings. Yeah, there's right, just not okay. the na- same amount of people going through. Mm. They're still educating people. They're still doing a great job mm. there. So the master plan, getting a long, yeah, yeah. long way to get to the answer. No, to your that's question. all right, buddy. That's <laughs> what, I've enjoyed the, the, the uh, little journey we're taking on here. Yes. The, the master plan. So they're, they're doing this whole portfolio plan and campus master plan at the moment. They've got consultants mm. engaged. So I had a, an hour discussion with these consultants the other day, and it was really about this view of what do we see Charles Sturt University campuses look like in the mm. future? How can we engage them in the community? Now, from my perspective, I'm happy to say what I told in feedback, I, I would love to see more activity there. Now, whether that activity is CSU students going to lectures there or whether it's just university students going to lectures there. In other mm. words, you might be attending another university, but you've got some place where you know you've got good internet access, yep. good remote learning facilities. Like a hub type idea. Like a hub, exactly yeah. right. So okay. maybe where Charles Sturt University goes in the future might be to facilitate learning with a whole range of mm. universities and there might be some fee they charge other universities for their students to come along. They've got to work out a business model mm. that works. 
Or maybe it's something where you go to Charles Street University for conferences, lectures, meetings, okay. other functions, yep. a bit like the zoo. Yes. You don't always visit the zoo to look at the animals. Sometimes you visit the zoo to go to a wedding yes. or to go to a conference. So using Charles Street University, the facilities mm. they've got for those type of things. Mm. Now, you've got the whole sports hub there that the state government has given a lot of money to to mm. build, and that'll happen over the next few years. But that might be an opportunity to again see mm. Charles Street yeah. more a part of the, the community. But the other thing that I think would be fantastic, and I've made this offer every year since I've been mayor, I've made the offer to both Sydney University and Charles Street University that I want the community to be more aware of the fact that we've got these mm. universities here because not everyone knows about no, them. that's right. So I've made the offer that I, via council, yep. will pay for your shirts, your jerseys, whatever it oh, is, terrific. for a sport. So go and enter a touch footy team, a netball team, a darts team, yep. something – I want the community a bit more to of see a, a public profiling sort of correct. thing. Correct. Yes. I want the community to see someone walking down the street with this Charles Street University Touch mm. Footy Team T-shirt on, or mm. in the Touch Footy comp, they're seeing it, and someone says, "Oh, why has Charles Street University mm. got a Touch Footy Team? Oh, we've got a campus here. Mm. Oh, wow!" And that leads to other conversations mm. or people reading the results in the paper, going, "Charles Street yep. three beat yep. Sydney University two. The CSU Ducks defeated Macquarie Raiders or whatever that sort of thing. Yes. Yeah, all that yes. sort of thing. So, and and some of those teams have taken me up on that offer, so that the community mm. has paid for some to. T-shirts, jerseys, mm. whatever. We're talking about a couple hundred dollars here, but again, mm. it gets that presence out there in the community. So getting mm. that obvious out yep. there, one of the things that I used to think is that Charles Sturt, when it first opened up here a couple of decades ago, would be great to hold on to our students because many students finish year 12. Yep. You'd see lots of your students, for example, and they go off to Wollongong and Newcastle, very popular, Sydney, all sorts of places around to get their higher education. But what struck me in some visits that I made to Charles Sturt many years ago was that it was great. We had students from Dubbo there. We had students from the region. So people that were from Cobar, Burke, places like that, that maybe it was a bit too far for mm. them to go mentally and physically or geographically to get yep. to Sydney, yep. they could make it to Dubbo. But I also found students from Sydney. And I must admit, the first time I met a student from Sydney, I went, oh. So they're coming from Sydney out here to Dubbo. That's right. Isn't that and fantastic? I, and actually, the student president many years ago mm. was from Sydney. And I went, oh, I was kind of, well, hold on, you've got universities in Sydney, mm. and surely you would have lots of options there. It's great you've come to Dubbo. Why have yep. you come? And it was, well, I really like the idea of getting out to regional areas. I, I like the lifestyle areas. Mm. I, I want to be out here. And if I can go to university out here, fantastic. So it's mm. not just people coming for jobs. Yes. It's people coming to university. For the lifestyle as well. We're probably yeah. not seeing that at the same level now. So mm. they've got a challenge on their hands, there's no doubt about it. But you know, you've raised an interesting point there in regards to it, is the fact that uh, well, universities are like any other business today. It's a very competitive marketplace. You know, you, you go online, you do the social line, and there's, you know, Swinburne University or this university. The, the online stuff is huge right now. Mm. And so obviously they have to do a master plan here to, I suggest, remain competitive in what is becoming an even more competitive marketplace. Yeah, that is exactly it. the spot on there. It is a competitive marketplace. Lots of universities out there competing for students to go there mm. all across the nation, all across the world, in fact. Mm. And you've also got other things competing. It might be TAFE courses. It might be other types of education you might do. It might be cadetships. So there's a, a lot of competition out there. Mm. Charles Sturt, as I think they've done very well, have been nimble in their approach to education in the past, and they've mm. been very good at that. And they've got to keep being nimble, mm. as other universities do as well. Absolutely. Now, staying with uh, CSU for a second, um, apparently during the week there, they had a bit of a launch of their international nursing campaign. So, 
how does this work, Matt? Are, are, these, uh, are they trying here to appeal for international students uh, to come to Dubbo to do nursing here in Dubbo? Is this, this the plan? The plan is exactly that. There is a nursing shortage, there's no doubt about that. And there's a lot of competition for university places for students here in Australia for different courses. Mm. So when kids are in year 12, you'd see it at school. There's lots of approaches from different universities about different courses. There's all, always a, a bit of a flavour of the of the month or the year mm. about STEM might be the big thing. Yes. There might be engineering schools chasing students. There might be medical staff. There might be nursing. So there's a whole range of different ones there. But bottom line is we've got a nursing shortage. Mm. And we have a nursing shortage across the state, across the nation, but also in regional areas. One of the things that the data shows is that if you are educated in a regional area, you are more likely to stay in a regional area. Is that right? It sounds obvious because you become accustomed to the lifestyle, you meet friends, you start playing sport in that area. Mm -hmm. And so then you finish your education and you go, well, I might as well stay here. Mm. I pretty much enjoy it. So mm. it's harder to get people to move away from those areas, mm. and that's why. Does the government recognise this as well? Do, like my thoughts are, if if this is the case, uh, do the governments of our land do they turn around now and financially support the universities in these regional areas to actually to to run more courses here for the the places of need and the areas of need that we want? I, I don't know. They run more courses. I think there's a recognition at every level of government that mm. there is an. Advantage, a benefit in having regional education, and the fact that we've now got the University of Sydney School of Rural Health mm. here in Dubbo, where all four years of your university degree it started off with the last two years. Now, all four years you can do here in Dubbo, you can do that in Orange as well. Charles Street University has got medical education in Orange, for example. Mm. We've got a dentistry school that's a combined Sydney University and Charles Street University school oh, yes, here in yes. Dubbo. Yep. So I think government, and government's got to support those financially. So I think governments are recognising that. Yep. I don't know they give any extra additional incentive for students to go and be educated regional, but just the fact there are places mm. in regional areas is a, an important part of that. So how many sort of numbers are they talking about here with these international students in the nursing? Are they are they looking at a significant number here? or I don't actually know. This is only the launch that happened this week, and I'm sure they know the numbers, mm. but it wasn't... have got an idea in mind what they want. Yeah. yeah, but really this is all about two things they're trying to do here, mm. Chelsea, which I think is quite clever. Yep. First of all, address the workforce shortage in nurses and in particular regional. So yes. having them educated here in Dubbo means they may not necessarily stay in Dubbo, but they're more likely to stay regional. in the region. Mm. That's right. So mm. they might end up in Narramond or Walgut or Burke or Cobar. They might end up in the region, which is fantastic. They might even end up in Orange or Bathurst, mm. might end up in mm. other cities, but they get the idea of city or regional living, I suppose, rather than metro living. So that's the first part. But we've just talked about the fact that Charles Sturt's trying to plan their mm. future. Yes. What are the courses that will be needed for people at Charles Sturt University in the future? Yeah. How do they accommodate that in terms of mm. providing that? That's right. And so this is one thing that they've said, well, we've done nursing in the past, but let's have a focus on getting out there and trying to attract international students. So if you're in an area and probably nearby areas internationally. Mm. They're probably not trying to attract people from London to come here. Mm. They're probably trying to attract people from around our region. And for a lot of people, an Australian university education is very well regarded, highly regarded. So for a lot of people from another country, coming to Australia to be educated is a Mm. good thing. And again, they might come here and be educated. That helps Charles Sturt with their numbers. Mm. That helps the Dubbo campus with numbers. But they might stay. But even if they went back, that helped our economy overall. Mm. So I think it seems like a good thing. One of the things that's really important is that Charles Sturt is really trying to engage with the community, with government, with a whole range of stakeholders to make sure that when these students come, they're welcome with open arms and they're 
basically integrated into our society. So is, there, is there any role local council here? Can we play in regards to supporting this? Well, really, I suppose, in what we do already, mm. but just acknowledging, and that's why Charles Sturt asked us to be involved in this, really just supporting them and being there for them. So, for example, we run a new residence night. So when people come along, hey, you're a new resident in Dubbo, come along and be welcomed and meet some of our different groups and clubs that you could be a, a yeah. member of. We'll make sure that Charles Sturt advertises to their students mm. when a new residence mm. night's on. So it's those type of things. I don't think there's anything in particular extra we've got to do. It's really just making sure that the students at Charles Sturt are aware of what's happening in the yep. community. Yep. So all those things there. But we do things already as a community mm. that mm. are very welcoming for mm. students. And I think some of these students that come along will be pleasantly surprised about how welcoming the community yeah, is. absolutely. We talked about this uh, a few podcasts back, um, March 2024. We have a very big event coming up here in Dubbo, which is the uh, the New South Wales Bowls Championships. It looks as though you had a chat to uh, Tim Tim Rowe, is the name of the CEO there, from Bowls New South Wales. I'd suggest in regards to the planning of these state championships. So let's just sort of go back a little bit, just uh, re- review to the, uh, the listeners out there in regards to what's actually happening here in March 2024. Well, it's, it's very exciting. State mm. championships, huge event, approximately 846 competitors. It's a great number, isn't it? It is, mm. of competitors involved in state championships. Now, you can imagine for each competitor, there's going to be other people that come along, maybe one or two, maybe three or four people yes, come along yes. for different competitors to come along. It goes over about a two-week time frame, but it's not, you don't have 846 people here for the entire two weeks because right, right. there's different competitions as part of that. Yeah. Huge event, obviously. Mm. And they typically keep it around metro areas. I'm going to say metro, mm. Newcastle, Wollongong, Sydney. It yep. seems to have been focused on that throughout its entire history. Yep, right. So bringing it out here is the first time they've really gone what I would call proper regional. I mean, some people yes. call, talk about Newcastle and Wollongong as yes. regional, but I don't it's really more provincial them. than it's probably regional, yes. Yeah, yeah, provincial. I like that. I'll steal that term. So <laughs> I, I call them out of metro, but a provincial I think is more accurate. So bringing it out to Dubbo is fantastic, mm. very exciting. And also a big decision by their board. You don't want to be the first board that hosts the state championships that's a failure. Yes, absolutely. There's a lot riding on it, I suppose. A lot riding on it. Yeah. Hey, we're going to move it to a regional area. Are you sure that's a good idea? Yeah, it'll be all okay. And if something goes wrong... Yes, I told you. uh, I told you. Now, there's a fair bit of planning that went on before we even arrived at this point. Mm. You may remember when we did talk about it some time ago, there was a a fair few phone calls from myself to the three clubs that will be Mm. involved in Dubbo because it will involve those three clubs for the number of rinks that they'll need to actually run the championships. And you need the support of those three clubs. Mm. They were all absolutely on board. Tim Rowe, I did have many conversations with Tim about this process because again, it might be easy for them to say, it's going to cost us more money. Council, can you just hand over that money? Mm. But again, I don't think that's good use of public money, of council money. Hence, we got the actual bowls clubs on board and they were all very, I suppose not keen to give money away, but very keen to have them here. So they were prepared to hand over some money as well. Invest in it, so to speak. Yeah, so I think a good outcome overall Mm. for those three clubs. So lots of phone calls, lots of discussions, and then a resolution of council to support that. We did give a contribution of some money, Mm. uh, but again, the clubs are contributing as well. So that's all fantastic. But this was the first time, after all these conversations on the phone and by Mm. email, that I got to actually meet Tim in Great. person, so he was here in Dubbo. But this was the first of the planning events. Now, it was a pretty big meeting, and mm. I didn't stay for the whole meeting because they were starting to get down into the nitty-gritty mm. of the actual detail, which I didn't need to be there for. Really, yeah. from my perspective, I was there to say, Dubbo Regional Council is behind you, support you, support our clubs, everyone together. If you need anything, come back to me, certainly, but 
I don't want to yeah. bog down your meeting. That's right. Which the day-to-day is, management, I'll leave that to you guys. Yeah, yes. that's right. But there were people there from the three clubs. Obviously, yes. that's very important. There were people there from zone, from district. Obviously, okay. their, their yep. parts that will be involved in as well. Obviously, Tim had some of his staff there in terms of that planning as well. Mm. So a lot of different people there. If I had to guess, there were probably 20 or so people there in the, in the room in that meeting. And this is the first meeting of mm. that group to start planning. And this is March next year. Mm. So it gives you an idea. Anyone that's in, been involved yeah, absolutely. in it's, it's, it's still a long time frame until March t- yeah, 2024, but it sounds as me they're right on track straight away. Yeah, that's right. Anyone that's been involved in organising an event knows there's a lot that goes in behind the absolutely. scenes. And that's exactly what will happen here. There'll be a lot that goes on. So we've got these, provided nothing goes wrong, we've got these stamp. Championships, state championships for 2024, 2026, and 2028. So it was a three year contract, yeah. but they do it every second year. So yep. in those intervening years, mm. all those alternate years, they'll be back in Metro, maybe in Sydney, yep. maybe Newcastle, Wollongong, but they'll basically bring them to the regional area, then back to Metro, mm. which is fine. I'm quite happy with that. Absolutely. That means out to the year 2028, we know we've got these state championships. Mm. So that's fantastic. I just think it'll be a great event. And I'm, I'm impressed with Tim. Again, over the phone, I've been impressed with him. I'm impressed yep. with Tim when I met him. I just think it's a really good sign. And we've got our staff involved as well to make sure that we maximise the opportunity for the community. And that's yes. what this is all about, helping those hospitality venues, helping the accommodation providers, all those different organisations that will be involved in this as well as the clubs. Another exciting venture for Dubbo. That's an interesting one, Matt. Um Looks as though we might have some information that has finally come through in regards to uh, the Duke of Wellington Bridge down there in Wellington. Now, this is the uh, the bridge that's created a fair bit of controversy, hasn't it, in regards to um, there was a bit of a plan that sort of was put into place uh, going back a while ago, around 2018 or so, to try to do something to maybe the potential to correct the potential damage of the Duke of Wellington Bridge. Unfortunately, of course, we all now know in 2022, I think it was, the floods went through and gone through and taken a hell of a lot of land out of this space. And now we're left with a scenario whereby the bridge is inaccessible. You cannot get onto it. Um, there's a lot of work that would be need to be done now to get this bridge up and running again. Um, there's some figures that are sitting here in front of me, and they're big to get this fixed. So talk us through it. What's, what's the situation? Well, let's go back in history. 6th of January, 1989. A Mack truck went through across the Macquarie River at Wellington, had a, a low load of trailer, and it was carrying an excavator. Mm. And, of course, as people know, that excavator caught on the bridge and collapsed the bridge. Yes. So we're talking about 989 here. So there was no crossing across the Macquarie River there in Wellington, and there was not a second easy crossing to get to. So mm. the detour that was put in place was a fairly extensive detour yes. to get traffic that was going from Sydney to Dubbo, for example, yeah. around. I think, first of all, we went across the railway bridge, didn't we? I think that was the first thing we did. Well, I, I, well, first of all, you had to detour back down around. Oh, it's a mudgy way. It was the first way, wasn't it? Well, Sydney? Was I, I think right? people or? would go mudgy way or they could also go out and come back in through Geary. So you'd go out. Ah, yes, uh, yes. So you, you'd turn off when you get to the uh, first roundabout, or not the first roundabout, but the roundabout where you turn down the main street in Wellington, you'd mm. go across the Bell River there yes, and then you'd yes. go out that way. Yes. So there were a couple of different ways you had to go, but they added a fair bit of distance, obviously. Mm. Then, and I don't remember what order this was in, but the army put a pontoon bridge in. Pontoon, yes, a floating pontoon. And also the railway bridge where it was a bit 
dangerous that one it because was, yes, that's <laughs> yeah. right. I remember going over it a few times. Yes. You had to stand or stop at the gates and wait and make sure there were no trains. And it wasn't like a <laughs> that's railway right. crossing. The trains were still running. That's, that's exactly right. right. You, you were driving across a bridge that trains potentially could be coming yes. along as well. Yes. So there was that put in place, and then in 1990 there was a low level bridge put in that mm. you didn't have the normal crossing, you'd turn before you, when you got to that normal crossing from the Wellington side, you'd turn left, you'd mm. go down Gabolian Street and there was a low level crossing then took you across on the other side of the river through Montefiore's and then back onto mm. the Mitchell Highway. So that was in 1990, that bridge was built. When they then constructed the new high level bridge and they did that bridge without having any structure over the top so you mm-hmm. wouldn't have that, that problem again. That's right, coming through knocking down again. <laughs> That's yes. right. Yes. Then the low level bridge was there and was left in place. Mm. I don't know how much traffic was going across that bridge. We don't have any accurate counters that were in on, on the bridge at the time, mm. but that was fine. Well, the bridge was built. Mm. We might as well leave it there now. Yep. No need to go and pull it down because it's doing its job. That's, that's right. Now, the Bell River and the Macquarie River, the confluence of those two rivers there, is around this part of the bridge. So mm. the Duke of Wellington Bridge actually gives you a crossing across the Macquarie River, but it's right near where the Bell River joins yes. in. Yes, The problem that was identified when the dam was put in was that the Bonal Dam was that you could control the flow of water coming down the Macquarie River but you didn't have that same control of the Bell River mm. and the Bell River is a very fast flowing mm. river yes that meant that you started to get more erosion at that confluence mm. because you had different levels of Macquarie and the Bell River from time to time because mm. of the dam now I'm not complaining about the dam the dam's mm. a great thing yep. but it led to more erosion council back in 2018 was given a report that was done around a whole range of spots in both the Bell River and the Macquarie River that talked about some of the things that might need to be addressed. And we're familiar with the redirection of Tracker Riley now to move it further away from the river where you get the part after the Tenworth Street Bridge. And that, again, was one of the areas identified in the report that maybe some work needs to be done there Mm. to shore that up. Mm. The other area was at this particular confluence. And the report in 2018 that was given to council said, and I quote from it, a high priority, severe erosion along approximately 270 metres of bank up to 10 metres high. Erosion since 2005 has retreated by up to 38 metres. So greater than three metres per year. That's a amount of erosion, isn't it? It is. And attributable to flood events in 2010 and 2016. So Mm. it wasn't as if... It was eroding at three metres a year on a nice, even scale yep. when you had flood events like 2010 and 2016. That's certainly impacted on it, absolutely. That's right, that, yeah. that created more erosion. Top of the bank is now within 40 metres of Gabolian Street, and erosion has the potential to impact on the road and the low-level Macquarie River Bridge within possibly 10 to 20 years. Hmm. Options are monitor and act when closer to the road, or decommission low-level bridge, or relocate bridge further upstream, or undertake substantial bank stabilisation works of either tow revetment or approximately 15 deflector structures with upper bank reprofiling. Mm. So there were some options there. Now, council chose not to take any action. There were some options there in that report in 2018. Mm. They chose not to take any action. And you may say that was reasonable because Mm. the report said 10 to 20 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You might have also said in 2019 might have been the perfect time mm. to do some work because we had the drought, a severe drought. Mm. And the best time to do some work in a river is obviously when you've <laughs> that's got right. lower flows. Yeah, lower flows that's so it, yes. that's that was back then. Now, mm. no one can say what's going to happen a few no, years later. No, that's but, right. We're not Nostradamus. No, that's right. So there was no action taken. 
end of 2022, as you said, there were some severe floods, yep. lots of rain, and then you ended up with the severe erosion that occurred mm. maybe ahead of when people might have expected it to occur. So that report, 2018, excuse the pun, but that's water under a bridge now. <laughs> we, we've got, I couldn't help it, I'm sorry. Boom. <laughs> we've got the future to look at now. Yes. Now, you, you're quite right. We cannot access mm. the bridge at the moment because of that erosion and the riverbank has fallen away. Mm. It would have been significantly cheaper to fix the problem when we still had the riverbank there because we would have been able to do some deflectors or mm. put some sort of treatment in place there mm. where you could stop further erosion happening. Prevention is better than cure. Absolutely. We're now looking at some options, and we've had a workshop on this, but we've got okay. no resolution of council yet. Yep. And the options were, we had four main options. One was do nothing, just right. leave it as it is. Yep. We might spend a little bit of money just tidying up the area, making it safe, making sure that people don't go across Which is that. still a genuine option. It is a genuine option when you consider mm. some of the other options yes, that are put to you. Yes, look at some of these figures I'm looking at. Yes. And, and the genuine option is there. And the report that we had, a company by the name of SMEC did the report. Right. They said that if you do nothing, you'll continue to erode that because you're turning the Bell River mm. into the Macquarie River. Yep. The natural flow of water is going to be to go straight ahead. Yes. If you do nothing, you're going to keep eroding that riverbank there. Mm. And sure, at the moment, it's up to where the bridge is, but you keep eroding that, it's going to keep chewing away that land mm. there. So not a great option, but you could do that option. Mm. The next three options all involve some big sums of money. You could decommission the bridge, remove the structure, but then do stabilisation works. Or you could decommission the bridge altogether and retain the structure. So rather than remove it, just mm. leave it there and undertake stabilisation works. Or reinstate the bridge and the road access and do the stabilisation works that you need to do. Now, all of these sound like good ideas. They all involve stabilisation works. That's right. And that's the, the expensive part. Mm. The bridge itself, we've had that analysed and we've had the report come back now that says the bridge structurally is intact. Mm. It's in good condition. That's okay. It was designed to be in a river and it's been in a river and so yep. it's okay. There's yep. a bit of damage done, superficial damage done where a tree's fallen off one of the railings, but that's fairly easy to fix. Mm. But the stabilisation works. To do the stabilisation works, you would actually have to put in some form of coffer dam, mini dam, right. to redirect the water flow away from the area. Right. So you'd end so up this is upstream with sort of thing, or downstream, upstream. Yep. yep. So you'd end up with a dry riverbed right. to be able to start to do the work. Now we did something similar for the south of a weir. Oh. When we put the rocks in downstream of the weir, because we'd had some unfortunately yep. some deaths that had occurred there, yes. they put the coffer dam in. I remember walking along the riverbed on the downstream side of the weir, you're sitting there basically right? looking at the face of the weir, oh, wow. all walking around on that ground there, yeah. and to, to they put that coffer dam in to basically allow them to put all the rocks there. But she'd have to do that during fairly dry times, though, wouldn't you? You couldn't do That'd it That'd be preferable, yeah, yeah. but you would obviously put it in so they can withstand whatever happens yep. during the, the construction process. Yep. So they'd have to put in some type of dam there, then they'd have to build out the riverbank again Back to at least like where it was, maybe a bit like further. Reclaim the area like Dubai yeah. or something. <laughs> exactly right. Like yes. you're building an island in Dubai. Yeah, right. Reclaim the area. Yep. And then you'd put in something like a, a gabion wall or some type of structure mm. that would withstand the water hitting it there and basically some rock structure okay. in place there. So this is not even rebuilding a new bridge or anything like that. This is just simply just making sure that we're not going to have the same problem again. Correct. Um, and what sort of money we're looking at here? So if we the, the, the best option would be obviously have that bridge being used again. Yeah, yeah. So that option is $21.6 million. Oof, it's a big figure, isn't it? If we just decommission the bridge, 
left the structure there, but said, let's not worry about a road interface there, but yeah. we'll have to fix up the actual riverbank there, mm. $21.4 million. So not much difference no, between right. that. Not a big difference there. So for that one, you just reinsert the bridge. Yes. And if we said, forget about it, let's just get rid of that bridge altogether, but we'll still need to do the stabilisation works, that's more expensive, mm. $23.4 million. That's Because you'd have to remove the whole bridge. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's a workshop. At this stage, it's all a discussion. Yeah. We'll have a report come through to council and we'll make a decision on what to do next. Now, we don't have a lazy $28 million dollars sitting around. Well, budget restrictions are not going to enable us to sort of spend that sort of money. So obviously you're going to have to go out and try to outsource this funding. So would you go to state government to to look at them as saying, hey, cap in hand, please support us here? Or what's the plan? There is a thing called disaster recovery funding. Okay. After you have a disaster, i.e. flood, mm. then you can go to the state government and say, we need the money for this particular project to fix it up. And we've also talked about betterment processes mm, yes, in terms that. of take this, whatever it might be that's been damaged, but let's not keep repairing that same thing over and over and over. Let's mm. make it a bit better so it doesn't need to be repaired. This probably wouldn't even come into betterment funding because the stabilisation works would be needed to actually put it back mm. to yeah. its previous state. Yeah. The unfortunate part is that you're not guaranteed funding from disaster recovery funding. We know we've got a million dollars to repair non-essential infrastructure. Mm. We know we've got a million dollars to repair sporting grounds and fences around sporting grounds. We've used, well, I'm sure used that million dollars in fixing up from the last floods mm. in sporting infrastructure or non-essential infrastructure. Mm. But essential infrastructure, typically you get dollar for dollar. So, or, or get all yep. the money back if you like. Yep. So if we need to spend $3 million, $5 million, $50 million on fixing up essential infrastructure, logically disaster recovery funding, you get that money back. But it's not guaranteed. Well, there's a question I'll ask you here in regards to that. There's two things. Number one, is this bridge, and do you think this bridge would, would qualify as being an essential item? The, the, the fact that there's already a bridge that goes across Macquarie uh, River there that I would suggest where most of the traffic goes, that's where the essential element would be, I think, for the, the road to go across, or the traffic to go across. Is this bridge, is the Duke of Wellington Bridge, would it classify as being an essential bridge? And secondly, with the report that came through back in 2018, Knowing full well that there was a recommendation put forward by the group at the time to sort of say, look, you, you need to look towards doing some stabilising work. Would state government look at that report and maybe frown upon it now and say, well, look, you guys were, were given the opportunity back in 2018 to do something. You didn't do anything about it. It was going to cost you, I suggest, a hell of a lot less than what the current costing is going to be. Would that potentially impact uh, state government's decision around providing funding to, to sort this out? All of those are valid questions, which I don't have answers to. Right, okay. <laughs> they may look at that and they may say, you knew about this and it might have cost you a million dollars at the time mm. or two million dollars at the time. Why didn't you do something? Or we may argue it was pretty hard to know that it was going to happen only four years after we received that report when the report said maybe 10 to 20 years. Mm. So there might be an argument there and we would argue that possibly we couldn't have got it done in that time. So there might be a logical argument there. In terms of the disaster recovery on essential infrastructure, mm. again, you're right, we've got a bridge that goes across the Macquarie that is down the Mitchell Highway. Mm. Is this bridge essential? Well, it still is road infrastructure. It's not just something that's nice to kick a footy around on. It's where people are using it. Again, it'd be nice if we had accurate data for how many people use that bridge, mm. but we don't have that, and obviously we can't collect it now because no one can use that bridge now. Mm. All of these things are relevant. If council makes a decision, and again, this will go to a council re a report to council, if council makes a decision to go for disaster recovery funding, which seems logical to do that, mm -hmm. then we'll need to put together a good argument and say this is essential infrastructure. 
because it's a lot of money. Now, mm. even though it's not going to be council money, we hope, it's still public money. Mm. And any government, yeah. state government, local government, any government should be using public money in the best possible way. Yeah. So, Well, is it essential enough to give away $23 million? Mm, that's right. And that's the argument we'll put forward again mm. if, if council resolves that way. That's the argument we'll be putting forward. It's not going to be a short-term process. If we get the money, that's easy. The answer to the problem is easy. If we get a no in that disaster recovery funding, then that's a much tougher answer. Or yeah. the other thing that I propose is, let's say the state government says, because you knew about that problem, we're going to give you some money because you might not have seen it coming that quickly, mm. but we're not going to give you all the money, so we'll give you half. Mm. What does council do then? That's, that's, what do we do? even a more difficult situation, I'd suggest. We've got some government money, but gee, we've got other money we've got to provide. Is it worth that amount? And yeah. what else could we do with that money? Yeah. Let's not go, and there's hypotheticals yet, let's yeah. go down and wait till we have a resolution from council to see the direction we're going to go and then see what happens from a funding perspective. But it's a, it's a, problem mm. and I've had people in Wellington ask me about it and at this stage all I've been able to say is we're still waiting for the report on the structure of the bridge because that would have been the first stop go. If the bridge itself wasn't structurally sound then mm. we'd probably be saying well do we really want to build another bridge? That's a tough decision yeah. as well. Yeah. At least we know it's structurally sound, now we've got to work on the approaches and actually getting to it. Mm. And that's also uh, there Matt, uh, last Thursday night, uh, as part of uh, the, uh, the the workshop, there was some uh, a council uh, code of conduct training uh, took place. So, hey, you blokes, um, you've been in trouble, have you? What's, <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's going on? No, not at all. One of the things that's essential with now, with the state government, they've actually said that you need a whole range of training courses when councillors are first elected, which is great. I think it's fantastic. Because you come into council with ideas of what you want to do and things that you think you want to be able to make a difference and make mm. the world better, but there's a whole range of things that you don't know when you're elected to council. So that training essentially is incredibly important to make sure people are at least up to speed. Mm. You get bombarded, and we've got eight people on this council mm. that have never served on council before, nine that have never been on double regional council before. Mm. So the training courses and the absorption of information was on overload mm. from the 1st of January, or not the 1st of January, but January 2022, right. which is when all those training courses started, and they went for yep. several months. The idea is that you'll do some refresher courses on different things during the term of council, mm. and this is an opportunity to do is, that. Is it a mandatory thing to do for council? It's mandatory now for councils to do the training. Right. What happens if you're elected as a councillor and you can't make it to some of that training? Mm. There's not really a process to make sure that you have attended training or you kicked off council, yeah. there is a reporting process to say that you did or didn't attend training. And our mm. councillors are really good. They all attended just about every course and, and caught up in some way if they couldn't attend so, mm. certain courses. But the mandatory part is the mandatory is providing the training, not necessarily having to go to all those training. I would mm. love, I, I think it'd be fantastic if, for example, in the first year after being elected, there was a, a mini course you had to do that included some form of assessment, some form yes. of exam, yes. so that you could tick off and say, I'm a qualified counsellor because yeah. I've done this, which at least demonstrates that you've got a, a certain level of knowledge. Even when you attend some of these courses, mm. there's nothing to stop you sitting there and tuning out and singing a song in your head yeah. and you're ticked off on the register saying, right, you've done that course now, That's you've right. been here, you, you Did sat you learn in anything? Chair. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Exactly right. And I actually like... The Australian Institute of Company Directors course, they've got a, a director's mm. course, and I did mine way back in about 2010, mm. and I did it for a couple of reasons. One, I thought it was interesting, 
I also thought it would help me just from a business perspective, but also thought it helped me with council because even mm. though council is not a board of directors, the structure is very similar. Mm. You've got a, a board of directors called councillors. You've got a chairman of the board called the mayor. Yep. You've got a CEO of the organisation called the CEO or general manager in council. So the structure is, is yep. very similar. So I did that course and I thought that was great. But one of the things I really enjoyed about that course was it was a, a week-long course from memory. I think I might have done it over two weeks. You could do half a week and then half a week. Mm. But it was essentially a week-long course nine to five each day over a week. And then at the end of that, you were given an assessment. So you had an assessment just yep. like a school yep. assignment, had your own time to go and do that. And that was a, a fairly detailed, involved mm. assessment where they expected mm. you to put a fair bit of time into it. Yep. And then they also had an exam, which you had to go and sit and basically pass All that right. exam okay. before you could then say, yes, I'm a graduate of the AICD. Something like well, it gives that. gives a bit more gravitas to the term a graduate, doesn't it? It then? does, exactly yeah. right. So something like that would be great. At this stage, yeah. they haven't gone down that path. They've just said... Yes, you've got to have these courses provided. So, so tell me, in regards to these courses, like this one here is a classic example, do you bring in external facilitators for this? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. Because there are people who specialise in this and there are so many different facets of council, mm. it would be difficult even for our staff to go through and provide the training on this. You really want to get mm. specialised people who do that. So yep. we had a woman and named... they can be objective too. There's, there's, there's no subjectivity in that. Outside the community, yeah. outside, and they just come in. They don't know the individuals involved. No. They don't know the various issues in front of councillors. It's just, here we go. So yep. Kath Roach was the one who did this training for us. Yep. Talked a little bit about some of the, the social media, social media policies. Talked about code of conduct. Mm. Talk about declarations for councils. Yep. It was really just a bit of an update, a bit of a refresh. And she provided our training previously, back mm. in, in January, February in 2022. Again, it was a bit of a chance for her to say, well, look, you're all new. When I last talked to you all, it was mm. all hard for you to absorb everything. How are you finding it? How are you finding the meetings are running? Mm. Are you finding lots of points of order in the meeting? Is the mayor running a terrible meeting and you haven't got mm. points of order all the time? And yeah. luckily there'll be no points of order. No that's good. Of, that's yeah, good here. That's Excellent. right. Uh, Kath did actually ask me how they've been running. I said, well, look, I think fantastically. I think good. But, well, I'm advised. <laughs> ask the other that's councils right. around the table to see exactly, how they think they're running. Right. But it's just one of those things. So it's not as if we've done something terrible. It's not as if we've got a plethora. Mm. In fact, the number of code of conducts we've had have been dramatically less than the last council. There's no yeah. doubt about that at all. And we've had no code of conducts that have gone to any sort of findings yet. They've all been basically mm. either knocked out immediately or or taken to the next level where they've been determined very easily in terms mm. of not a breach as, as such. So mm. that's all good. But again, you don't want to be complacent. That's you right. want to make Absolutely. sure that you yeah. continue yeah. to do the right thing. That's right. And, and keep in mind... It's not a valid reason to lodge a code of conduct on a councillor because you don't like the decision that was made. Mm. I'm sure there have been some people that haven't liked decisions that have been made by yep. council, by councillors, but that's not a valid reason. Did they approach it in the right way? Did they follow a, a correct procedure or process? Just not agreeing with them is not a good enough reason, no, although right. I'm sure some people would like to lodge a code of conduct yeah. on that. Now, regards to uh, the res. Now, um Got some uh, some paper sitting here in front of me today. Got some some good figures here. Uh, this is this is fascinating. So our renewable energy zone. We, we've talked about this uh, significant length on a number of podcasts. Now what I'm looking at here is is fascinating. I didn't realise, Matt, just how many different uh, groups and organisations are involved in this, and companies are are actually involved in setting up here in our region in a variety of different areas. This is fascinating. Talk us through it. So I actually got some information sent through to me about all the various projects that are either in planning or in operation in some form of development because I just want to get a snapshot on where we're at with it because we've talked mm. about it and we've yes, talked about the yes. excitement and the expansion Absolutely. of the Renewable Energy Zone, but let's break it down to the actual projects. Mm. So 
I've got a list, and we'll talk about a few different parts of that because I've broken the list up in a few different ways. The first thing is just a list of all the projects in alphabetical order, nothing in particular there. 37 projects in this, adding up to 11.5 gigawatts. Mm. Now, the first thing you're going to say to me is, hold on, we talked about the expansion of 6 gigawatts. Mm, yeah. How can it possibly be 11.5? Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. So, so I was going to say, we're already doubling uh, our figures from last week. That's right. I'll, I'll leave that dangling for a moment. because I've, I've broken <laughs> Keeping up, us all in suspense. That's right. I've broken up the figures in a few different ways. One way I wanted to break up the figures was by the actual local government area. So I wanted to first of all see where the actual projects are at. So in mm. other words, we've this is the Central West Arana Renewable Energy Zone, mm. and we know from our previous discussions that takes in Midwestern Regional Council, Warrumbungleshire Council, yeah. and Dubbo Regional Council. Some of the projects even sneak over a little bit into maybe Gilgandra or mm. Narrowmine or mm. even Upper Hunter, but, but they're in mainly those three areas. So when I look at those, let's just give you some numbers briefly. If I look at Dubbo Regional Council, and keep in mind that when I say Dubbo Regional Council, these are Dubbo Regional Council some of them might sneak over the border into Warren Bungle, for example, or yep. even Midwestern, but mainly Dubbo Regional. We've got 18 projects that make up five and a half gigawatts wow. for Dubbo Regional yeah. Council. Now, you look at Midwestern Regional Council, 10 projects making up 2.8 gigawatts. Yep. When you go to Warren Bungle, only four projects, but they make up 2.9 gigawatts. Oh, okay. So, there must be major projects up there. Yeah, they've got a, a one particular wind farm that's about 1.3 gigawatts, yeah, wow. so that's fine. Then you've also got, in Narrowmine, for example, four projects that makes up 0.2 gigawatts. Okay. And technically, they're not part of the res, but mm. I'll get to that in a moment. Mm. And Gilgandra, they've got one project that's just in their area at the moment, which is a small project, 0.04 of a gigawatt. Mm. So that gives you a bit of a breakup just by local government area to give you some sort yeah. of So context. our region around here, what you're sort of saying, is, is seems to be by far the biggest region in regards to what the output's going to be. Yeah, that's absolutely spot on there. So that's one part to look at. Then I thought it might be worthwhile looking at the different projects in terms of whether they're connected to the res or not. Now, mm. this is being a bit pedantic here, but I think it is important to be pedantic around it because the res technically is only the projects that connect to the new transmission line. So it hasn't really officially started yet, the res. Is that, is that a fair assumption? Things have started in planning for the res, yep. but the res, there are no projects connected to the res at this stage because mm. the new transmission lines aren't in place. Mm. That's Energy Co's job, which is a subsidiary of the state government or mm. wholly owned subsidiary of the state government. Yep. That's their job to build the new transmission lines. We've got a 550 kilovolt and a 330 kilovolt line that are being built as part of that. And when you connect to those new transmission lines, that's when you are technically mm. part of the res. Right. But right now, though, there, there are operations out there. There's solar farms, there's wind farms that are already operating, that are already uh, putting energy into the system. So currently, Matt, what, what have we got going currently uh, that is uh, – already contributing to the res, to do the actual uh, input here of uh, electrical systems. So, I'll, and this isn't necessarily an operation yet, I'll get to that one in a mm. moment, but these are all the projects that are not considered part of the res yes. versus the projects that are. So, yeah. It's a good way the, of putting it. Okay, let's yeah, look at that. The projects, and again, these are in operation, development, planning, etc. The projects that are not part of the res, mm. 26 projects making up 4.3 gigawatts, and then the res projects, the ones that are technically yes. part of the res, 11 projects, 7.2 gigawatts. Wow. So okay. now that 11.5 gigawatts I talked about before, yeah, yeah. that starts to make a little bit more sense because the 6 gigawatts for the res yep. 
is just the res. Mm. That doesn't include the 4.3 gigawatts that I just mentioned mm. there. Mm. So the 7.2 is still a little bit more than the actual res on a technical viewpoint. Yep. But again, we're talking about different projects here that mightn't all go ahead mm. or maybe the size will change of those. So there's some different parts of that there, mm. I suppose. So that's an important part. The other part I thought was worthwhile breaking it up are the different style of projects. You've got solar, you've got wind, but you've also got battery. And some of those batteries... So the battery one, are they just simply storage-based? Correct. Okay. So the six gigawatts we talked about is six gigawatts of production. Mm. I'm not sure, but I don't know this 100%, but I'm not sure that they would actually count the battery projects in that because mm. that's not really producing electricity, no, no. that's storing it. Yeah. So if I look at the breakup of those... In battery projects, there are seven battery projects, 2.3 gigawatts of mm. storage, oh. of, of output. So that's not gigawatt hours. That's maximum capacity output mm. when those batteries are used to the maximum capacity. Mm. And it probably would make more sense to have those rated in storage capacity. But at the moment, I've only got them in, in actual output capacity. In terms of solar, 22 projects making up 4.2 gigawatts. Okay. And in wind, only eight projects, but they make up 4.9 gigawatts. Yeah, right. And and wind projects do seem to be often yeah. larger. So is, is it fair to say then the, the wind projects uh, potentially produce more electricity? Is that, is that the well, way Well, only, only because of the amount of area that you need. Okay. So when you talk about wind projects, you put one wind turbine up, that can produce three, four, five gigawatts even. Yeah. Yeah. Solar, you need a, a large area for that. Yeah. So you'll probably find that the projects, and again, 22 projects versus eight, yeah. but more out of the wind because, again, some of those solar projects are taking up large chunks of land. For the listeners out there who may be getting a little bit confused by all the figures and that we're, we're throwing here at them, um, you know the uh, the solar farm that's as we're heading out of town on the Mitchell Highway from Dubbo heading towards Wellington on the right-hand side. Now, that's what I would look at that and i say, that's a decent size uh, you know, solar farm there. So... What sort of uh, energy output uh, is that producing? What are we looking at? Well, that's a good question, and I'm just going to find it very quickly. I'm pretty sure that one's called the South Keswick Solar Farm. Right. And on my list here, South Keswick Solar Farm is this there in operation, which is, yep. yep, that would make sense. Not part of the res, that would make sense. Yep. And that's owned by Neon Australia, N-E-O-E-N, yep. and that's producing 15 megawatts. Look at that. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Like, and we're talking here gigawatts, gigawatts, which is a thousand megawatts. Isn't that is that correct? Correct. So wow. when you look at the other project, that's a light source BP project. Yep. As you go from Wellington across to Mudgee, yeah. you'll see that project on the left there before the jail. The yeah. existing one, I've often talked about that as a two hundred megawatt solar farm. Yeah. Now on the list that I've got here, it actually shows that particular one as being. I'm pretty sure that's the right one there, 174. So I talk about right. it in 200 yeah, megawatts. Yeah. I know when I went out there for a tour one day, they talk about 200. Right. They might have just been rounding up. But so that one, to give you yeah. that idea of that size, yeah, yeah. 174 on my list here. It's saying Light Source BP, formerly First Solar, yep. uh, Wellington Solar Farm in operation. So that would be the right one there. So 174. Wow. So it gives yeah. you an idea of the well, size. When I look at that uh, project now, there on the right hand side, heading towards Wellington, uh, it's a baby project, really. Yeah, it is. It's, it's exactly just a little right. baby. Yeah. The other one that I thought would be worthwhile mentioning, which mm. might give you an idea of the scale as well, is I broke up the list. This is the last part of the breakup mm. for this particular part. I broke it up into projects that are in operation right now yeah. that are in development. 
So they've probably had their approvals finished and they're basically doing the planning mm. of the rollout or the construction, whatever it might be, and then ones that are still in planning. So in operation right now, we've got seven projects in operation and they're making up 0.6 gigawatts. Is that right? That's it. That's it. <laughs> in ones that have got... The, the project yeah. stage is called development. So again, largely I think that the planning would yeah. be finished for those and they'd be approved and they're just doing the, the construction or the planning for that. Yeah. 13 projects, 4.1 gigawatts. Mm. Now of those 13 projects, only three are technically part of the res. Right. So they've got the development approval done. Mm. They might even start construction, but mm. they're not going to actually produce power on the grid mm. until the res part is done, until the mm. transmission lines are done. So that gives you an idea there. Now, the ones that are in planning stage still, 16 projects, 6.5 gigawatts. And there's one other that's only at mm. feasibility stage. So that's only 0.3 of a gigawatt. It's, you can just sort of almost picture now and imagine just how big this is going to get. Yeah, yeah very amazing. big. And I think still very exciting. Absolutely. Well, the highlights uh, every year here in Dubbo are the Rhino Awards. Now, the Rhino Awards are, are run by the Chamber of Commerce, and it appears as though uh, during the week, Matt, you had a chance to catch up with the Chamber of Commerce, and they're uh, well and truly into the Rhino Awards planning. So how is the planning going, and are we getting plenty of people voting and nominating and buying tickets and all those sort of things this year? I do have a regular meeting with the Chamber of Commerce, which is great. I think that's mm. really important that the council and the Chamber of Commerce, not called Chamber of Commerce anymore, Dubbo Business Chamber. They've, my bad. They've changed their name. No, that's my fault as well. I still say Chamber of Commerce. And so we have regular meetings, and the topic of discussion this week when we met was around the rhinos because they're very much in the rhino season at the yes, moment. Yes, that's right. And so entries have closed, the, the judging has started, but they were very impressed with the number of entries they received yes. uh, up on previous years. So that's good. That's, that's a, great. a good show of strength from our business community. Yeah. And the ones where they're doing voting, so when people can vote for oh, their yes. Yes, favourite yeah. person with a smile or their trade. Get little Zappo on it, yes. Exactly right. I'm not sure if that's the technical term Zappo, oh, but I'll run with that. So. <laughs> <laughs> so they're, they're, they're impressed with the number of entries they've received by that oh, as good. well. So that's good. a good show. But it's also good just to get a bit of a snapshot of the business community in general. Mm. And the general feedback from the Chamber around the business they deal with is that still very strong from our local economy. That's right. fantastic. Yep. Also, the problem that we know that we've identified that we talk to state government a lot about is the skill shortage. There are... Mm. Definitely, people screaming out for more employees. Mm. Business across the board, isn't it? Across the board. Yeah. But one really interesting thing, and mm. again, this is why it's great to have discussions yeah. with different groups, such as the Business Chamber, mm. there's a bit of a flow of people coming back looking for some part-time work. Now, okay. when you've got interest rates rising and you've got people that have got their home loans, for example, yep. they're working their job, they're going on okay, then their repayments start to go up a little bit. Their week, mm. monthly repayments start to go up a bit. They can't necessarily earn extra money at work. Mm. They've still got their fixed wage there. What do they do? Do they sell their house, get out of it? Do mm. they try and work out other ways to reduce their spend? Sure. But mm. they also look at ways to make more money. Mm. So you're finding some of these businesses that need more employees now, and hospitality is one I'm thinking of in particular, mm. they're actually finding a few people coming back and saying, do you have some nighttime work? Do you have some weekend work? Yeah, right. I need to just generate a yeah. bit of extra money because yeah. I want my, my home loan's gone up by 50 bucks a week. If yeah. I could just get one shift on a weekend, well, that's mm. it. I've, I've covered my extra home loan repayment. Mm. So that might be, in a kind of strange way, 
a good thing, interest yeah. rates rising, yeah. because maybe some of these businesses that are screaming out for yeah, more yeah. employees might get some more employees via that sort of it's process. An interesting way of sort of looking at it, isn't it? Um, you know, I had an interesting uh, conversation during the week with a couple of different people who had not long moved to Dubbo or moved back to Dubbo in two of the cases um, because of the simple fact that they felt that the affordability living in Sydney was just getting too much. And so they've come back to Dubbo to live here and very happy being back here. Well, and that's exactly it. You you want people to be moving back here. You want people to be really happy to be here. Yeah. One of the reasons we say to people to move here is affordability. Yeah. Median house price, actually, it's gone up. The latest figures I saw had the median house price at $540,000, right. which still seems expensive in what we might consider prices in mm. the past from mm. double prices, but it's still a lot cheaper than Sydney. Oh, absolutely. So affordability is important. Yes. But again, you've probably got that option yeah. if you live in a regional area to be able to work your normal job. Yep. And then maybe there are some opportunities to get some weekend work easily accessible. I absolutely. think that's important. Working part. opportunities as well. Now, we talked earlier about the police and the great job that they do. Um, I noticed here, Matt, that... Uh, Last Saturday, you went to the Burrabadeen Brigade's 75th anniversary. That's a, that's a wonderful achievement. And I noticed the fact here that you also were part of, uh, out there, these, these guys are recognising the long service uh, of so many of their members out there. So how did it all go? Yeah, fantastic. And again, I do really enjoy going out to the Rural Fire Service. A bit like the discussion we had with the police before. Mm, mm. You've got people out there who are risking their lives. And in many of these cases, these are volunteers as well. Yes. And if you look at the Burrabadeen Brigade, I'll say that again, the Burrabadeen Brigade. <laughs> it's a tongue twister. All it is a bit. They've only got 35 in the brigade. Doesn't sound like a lot of numbers, yeah. but they've responded to 178 incident calls in the last year. Isn't that impressive? It is impressive. And you say they're all volunteers. Well, there are the some. The vast majority of Yeah, there anyway. are some people paid in the rural fire service mm. hierarchy. I can't mm. tell you who and what. I don't really mind that much because I think they're all mm. doing a great job yes. putting their lives on the line, going out there and doing things that I don't want to do, but no. I'm, I'm glad that no. someone wants to do it. That's right. So that's important. But yeah, there were 21 long service medals given. There were people there that I saw receiving these that had 10, 20, 30 and 40 years of service Isn't that impressive? You just said 35 people and 21 of them have just got long service awards as well. Yeah. Wow. One life membership was given. Yeah. So Paul Metcalf was given life membership. But again, I just think it's one of those things that we don't appreciate enough mm. some of these people that are in the emergency services and I don't care what it is I don't care those frontline services they all are doing mm. great work in different ways and some people prefer one over the other that's fine that's their mm. own choice but the fact that they're doing it that they're out there I've said many times that if I'm going to be in an emergency if I'm going to have a traffic accident if I'm going to have a house fire if I'm going to have something happen to me yeah. I want it to happen out here in this area because I've got a lot of confidence that there's going to be someone there to help me out so mm. On behalf of the community, thank you Absolutely. to the Burrabadeen Brigade. I just wanted to say Burrabadeen again. <laughs> thank you to the Burrabadeen Brigade. Yes. But also thank you to all of those first responders. What great work they mm. do, and I'm glad that they're out there. Mm, here, here. That's a, uh, a couple of reminders here, Matt, which I'd like to, refer, to mention to our listeners about. Uh, the first one is in regards to the call for residents to express their opinions on our trees. And if uh, council regulations are needed or maybe need a bit of tightening up in this area, how does this work, Matt? What's what's happening here? I know we talked about this briefly here uh, on a podcast tour back. Um, is council looking at uh, putting in some more uh, tighter regulations around the nature of uh, the trees in our town and the size of them and what needs to be lopped and chopped? So s there is a tree preservation order that we have now, mm -hmm. but that's got a significant tree register. 
you've got to register a tree on that to have it protected by council or such or have to get permission to do anything to that. Mm. Some people in our community would argue that that's not strong enough and so that's where this has come from, that it's mm. going forward to ask the community what they think. There are some councils that have various conditions in place. If you've got a tree over a certain diameter or over a certain height or various conditions, then you've got to get permission from council to do something with it and it isn't acceptable just to say, oh, I'm a bit sick of the leaves that might drop. It's got to be danger to some other infrastructure, mm. for example. It's, mm. it's impacting underground pipes or it's doing something that, that might create some danger for, mm. for humans or property. We're actually going out there now, and that's exactly why you brought this up, I assume, because mm. we're seeking opinions from people to say, we're looking at our process now, our tree preservation order. We've got one in place. Is it good enough? Mm. Give us some feedback. If we put one in place, what sort of size tree should it apply to? What sort of fee would you be happy to have applicable because there'll be some admin fee if you want to make an application to take some branches mm. off a tree or knock a tree down. There'd be some admin fee associated with that. Mm. So the reminder is really go to Your Say. If you just Google Dubbo and Your Say, that's where we've got a common platform for all of these mm. things now when we're asking for community feedback. Mm. And we're really saying give us your feedback, tell us what you think, let us know, bottom line, mm. before we go and make any decisions about this. It, it, has this come from, like I know you mentioned the fact there's the, the tree preservation society groups in town who are obviously keen to want to preserve um, some of our bigger trees and more established trees maybe, I'm not quite sure. Um, but uh, is this more of a, a safety focus for council to try to tighten up maybe areas of uh, potential issues around trees falling and branches falling off from certain heights and things like that? Or It's a combination of, it's really about increasing our tree canopy. There is a, a focus from council to have more tree cover for a whole range of reasons. We've got the climate changing, yep. with more tree cover, you've got a better environment to live in, more amenity if you like. Mm -hmm. But you also have to be careful of the line you might cross in terms of telling people in their yard, mm. around their castle, if you mm. like, if you want to mm. quote from Absolutely. a movie, yes. about telling people what to do on their land. Now, we do have rules in place for you want to put a carport on. You can't just go and whack a carport up. You've mm. got to get approvals for that. And that's about safety because obviously you want to make sure it's going to adhere to the yeah. various building regulations and, and guidelines. With this, there might be some argument there that it's okay for council to be involved in telling you what you're allowed to do on your land, but there might be some people who say, we don't want that. Mm. Again, we're seeking feedback. With that feedback and with the expertise of our staff and a whole range of other information, councils will finally put together something. It may not change. It may stay the same as it is. It may change dramatically, mm. but this is the chance now for the community to have mm. their say about it. I'll be interested to see what the feedback comes out, guys. Now the other little call out, uh, just wanted to quickly uh, remind uh, our listeners of this in regards to applications are closing pretty quickly for the upcoming community service funding handout. Now this is something we talked about recently where uh, there used to be two pools of funds. They've been merged into one pool of funding. There's extra money now available too with this one because, well, I think the last lot of funding uh, wasn't all used up. So it sounds like there's some significant uh, funding available. Uh, community groups, get out there now and start to fill out those forms, I'm suggesting. Is that right? 31st of August, and that's exactly Oof, why there you, go. 30, you brought that's, this that's up. That's the cutoff. That's there the cutoff. And you must submit your application via Smarty Grant, which is an online tool. You Love can't that do title. it by that's right. <laughs> you can't do it via paper, email, or fax. Right. So make sure you do that. And you, you hit the nail on the head. We combined those funds. We made it easier for people to do the application process. Now we've got seventy five thousand dollars that we'll, we will have available twice a year. Yep. But because I think it was a little bit too complicated last financial year, mm. it was undersubscribed. Mm. So we brought forward some of that money. So the first one 
has $120,000. That's great, isn't it? So if you're thinking, oh, I probably won't be able to get it, and I don't know if they'll application, put the application in. Mm. If it's not applicable, you won't get it. And if if it's oversubscribed, then people will get less than they asked for. Mm. But I don't want to see the opportunity missed for any community groups out there. Not-for-profit community group, have a read of the guidelines, and again, go to Smart Is there a maximum amount of money they can apply for? There isn't, but logically there will be. I mean, $120,000... If someone put in an application for $120,000, I'd be pretty confident they wouldn't get it mm, because there'd be mm. other ones that would be needed to be looked at yet. So be realistic in regards to what you can do. Yeah, y- yeah. You want to be able to demonstrate how you're going to use it and being realistic in it. And if you're yeah. going to ask for a large chunk, it's probably unlikely. And that might be something we might modify those guidelines mm. in the future. But at the moment, there isn't an upper limit. But most of the time, people put applications in, they're putting them in for 500000 a couple of thousand mm. dollars. Mm. And they've got to demonstrate clearly what they're going to do with it because this is public money mm. after all. And I suppose the big thing is there to try to get the biggest bang for the buck. Exactly. That's it. You hit the nail on the head to get a great outcome for the community out of the money that they get. Now, you're a braver man than me, Matt, uh, because next uh, Friday night, uh, we're still August here, by the way, we're having the Vinnie Sleepout. And this is going to be at the Aldabar Jail. And I see the fact that uh, you're going to be... Uh, Heading on down there with your winter woolies, I suggest probably three layers of uh, pyjamas plus the beanie plus the everything else. I'm pretty sure Dubbo is still going to turn on their typical freezing type conditions for you there. Maybe a minus two or three for you, maybe. I haven't checked the weather yet. You're not giving me great confidence. And I must admit, I do prefer the warm weather rather than the cool weather. Uh, so we've got three councillors at this stage. Matt Wright, yes. Shindy Shouter and myself Good sleeping on you. out. That's fantastic. We've, yeah, we've got the CEO, Murray Wood, sleeping there. I oh, must do. Yeah, yes. Julie, Julie yes. Webster from the jail. Uh, I think at this stage, there's about 15 people registered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, it's one of those things, really, it's trying to show that we might be in touch a little bit with people mm. living homeless, but it's not really because mm. I know I've got a warm house to go home to if I need to. Mm. When we get up in the morning, we can go out of a nice shower and have a nice meal. So it's not really because there are people out there who are living on the street yeah, and they don't have that right. option. Generally to, struggling, that's right. That's right, that they know they can go and get a warm house or have a nice mm. shower or, or get a, a nice feed. Mm. So it's a little bit we could do, but the main part is a bit of fundraising as well. Look, I'm yeah. sure it'll so be... So there is fundraising involved? Exactly right. And okay. I will, obviously there's no point giving a, a long link uh, on the podcast mm. itself verbally, but I have got the link on the, um, when people, wherever they get their podcast from, and it's got the description of what's in this particular episode, yeah. I've got the link in there as oh, well, brilliant. so people can go there. It's all done through Vinnie's. This is basically the whole idea of a, a, like a... A CEO sleep out that you see in Sydney oh, yes, sometimes. Yes. It's the same model as that. Yep. I'm glad they're doing it towards the end of August rather than maybe a bit earlier because maybe it warmed up well, a little bit. Well, let's hope that minus three prediction doesn't necessarily come <laughs> yeah, through. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but look, I think it's a good thing just to be involved in the community yeah, and get out thing. there and, and do that. And I'm sure there'll be a bit of fun on the night, but I'm not looking forward to being cold because I'm sure it will be cold. Plenty of doing park running this morning, are you? Well, I'm going to try and drag a few of them down there to park oh, run instead of morning afterwards. <laughs> I might get maybe a second or two closer to you next week. Well, you might be a bit chilly in, in the morning. <laughs> Speaking of uh, running, of course, the uh, next Sunday, we've got the Dubbo Stampede coming up. So uh, are you going to run the mats in the Stampede this year? I will. I'm going to do the half marathon. I would love to oh, do the marathon. Just the half this year? Just the half. Oh, I, good on you. I, I've only done <laughs> one great. one marathon in my life, and that yeah. was one that was enough. But I just don't have the time. I'd 
love to do a mar- another marathon, but you need the time to train properly How's for a marathon. Training going? I didn't realize you're even training for a half marathon. That's well, I'm not really. That's the thing because I reckon yeah, right. you can get away with a half marathon without training too much, and you'll be sore the next day. The best I, I do. I'll like just stop you there for a sec. I like the way you just put that. You can get away with doing a half marathon and just feel a bit sore the next day. Well, I, I do a bit. Of, <laughs> I do a little bit of running for park run. So yeah, yeah. I think five if you can, k's. Yeah, that's right. I think if you can run five k's, uh, my attitude will be, I'll run five k's, mm. and then I might even stop for a second and go, right, I've done a park run, and then I'll start another park run yeah. and do another park just run. Do and four then, of them. Yeah, that's right. Do four back to back. So I, I think that'll be okay. And again, look, I'm sure I'll be sure. Oh, it's, I'm it's, sure it's, I'll be sore. Yes. But yes. again, the marathon, again, the one I did do, I had to have a bit of a training program to build up to that distance. You know, 42 mm-hmm. kilometres is a mm. long distance. Yeah. And I don't think you can wing it, but I reckon I can wing it to a certain extent with a half marathon and get away with it. So oh, I'm impressed by that. I truly am. That's, that's wonderful. I'll, well, I'll keep an eye for you then. I'll tell you in a couple of weeks' time whether or not <laughs> I've been that's able right. to wing it. But it is a great event. Yes. And... Last year, you may remember that they couldn't run the full normal course because Shibble Bridge was closed. Oh, the, was that the floods last year? Exactly problem, right. Was it? Yeah, yes. there were a couple of the low-level bridges, pedestrian yeah. bridges closed. Yeah. But and it was a bit out and back last year, so it wasn't as exciting for people mm. to do it. But this year, back to their normal course, which was great, out Obley Road, around the whole track of Riley, then a loop around the zoo. That's the half yeah. marathon. The 10Ks does a bit along Obley Road and, and around the mm. zoo. The 5Ks does just around the zoo. Mm. I'm sure there's still entry spots left. Mm. They typically have about 3,000 people. Oh, it's a wonderful experience yeah, to it's be a great part of. You know. But running around a zoo as well, that's pretty cool. Oh, so absolutely, yeah, yeah. You might have a lot of time to absorb the animals while you're struggling along there towards the end. But I'm sure I, the animals, if they could, would be scratching their heads and going, what are these humans what are they doing, doing today? <laughs> <laughs> They're not made for this sort of running. You idiots, stop it. <laughs> but uh, look, great event, great organising committee. And I love the fact that they do roll over the organising committee on a regular basis. Mm. The 3D printed toilet will be not officially open, but will be operational by then because the okay. half marathon and the marathon go past that. Oh, right, okay. So that'll be at least available for people to use nice. on the day. Okay. So again, get involved if you can, volunteer yeah, if you can, whatever. But I think well done to the group there that have got, uh, you know, again, a, a whole lot of organising to do for mm. that. I'm sure they've been organising that for a long time, mm. but well done to them and, and well done to all the people that are going to be involved and participate. Yes, and, uh, and best of luck to you for the 21Ks as well. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> all right, mate, it's uh, time now for the Limerick of the Week. So, every week I ask you the question, what have you got for us this week? Well... A lot of different things to choose from, mm-hmm. but I thought with our first responders, the given the fact we've got some action at the Barabadine Brigade on Saturday night and then our police during the week, so I just thought let's talk about our first responders in our limerick this week. So maybe it's a little bit more serious than normally my limericks. You know, I always try and make them a little bit yes. amusing, yes. question yes. mark, but this one's a bit more serious because I just think they do some great work. So oh, very good. Here we go this week. Burrabadeen Brigade, strong and true, and Dubbo's police, a steadfast crew. In bushfire or crime, they're there every time, dedicated to helping everyone of you. Oh, well done, yes. Now, I, I can't be laughing at that. That was a bit more serious this week, but that was wonderful, as per usual. Well, folks, that just about wraps us up for another edition of Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Just one last plug before you go. 
we're talking about Australia Day ceremonies. We've got our council meeting this week. So make sure you get the chance to talk to your local councillor about the decisions that will be made about when we'll be holding the ceremonies in Dubbo and Wellington. Yes. So that decision will be made this Thursday night. Oh, this night, Thursday? This Thursday at oh, council. Well. So I'm glad it, you PS'd me on that one. That's, that's right. very good. If you get a chance, just talk to your councillor and tell them what you think about it because, again, I think that's an important thing that's to make sure one. you have your say before yeah. that. Yeah. So any, on you go, sorry. No, mate, no, no that's all fine. So, again, take two on this one. Until next week, everyone, take care. Straight from the Mayor's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.